the outcry was unbelievable. I, I thought I'd murdered Bambi. You know, these keyboard warriors seem to uh, want to outdo one another. When somebody writes vitriolic tripe, the next person comes along and wants to beat that. Very nice to hear it again. Isn't it? I've got little goosebumps. Oh, sea change. There is going to be a sea change revival. Somehow his iCloud got caught up with her computer and a lot of women, some of them prostitutes, talks of lines. Oh, this is so grubby. I know, I know. I think that's the first time we've had the F word. Can we start saying it now? Because sometimes it's appropriate. Well, Corey, I of all people know what happens when people use violent language and the the outcry it creates now is perfectly appropriate. I thought for party season I can never go past a ball, a meatball. As you know, I'm a bit of a meatball fan. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi everyone, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 59. I'm Corrie Perkin and I'm here with my good friend, the award-winning journalist, Caroline Wilson. And today we have a guest, Caro. We do. I love it when we have a guest. Yeah, and particularly one that I've organised because I'm not very good at organising things for this show. But I'm very excited about today's guest. Highly unusual of you to be (laughs) organising someone's social diary. Well, I actually met him at lunch and I was so taken with his story. And then I found out he had a book coming out. I thought... This is a synergy that Don't Shoot the Messenger cannot ignore. Exactly. And it is a race book. We're going to welcome Greg Miles in a moment, who is the used to be the voice of uh, The Ponies, The Track, uh, and now enjoying uh, a very happy retirement and has written a terrific new book, as Cara said. First of all, I would like to say thank you to our show sponsor, The Interchange Bench, the first-class temporary and contract talent. I have a story on that a bit later, Caro, because one of our listeners uh, actually did contact The Interchange Bench and apparently have some great new workers with them, so that's fun. And I'd like to say hello to Kay Jones, who posted on our Facebook page the other day, listen to the podcast and the book pod while in Scotland and then in Bruges, Belgium. Great listening. Thanks, Carol and Corey. Oh, we do travel far, don't we? We do. Far Bru- and wide. Bruges is a very pretty little town. I spent a pre-Christmas there not long ago. And Corey, um, we've also heard from Ms. Rule AU, who commented on your crush of the week last week, the Interchange Bench crush of the week, Barbara Streisand. Love Babs. Another legend is Jane Fonda, 80, still working, acting and being a very active activist. HBO recently had a doco called Jane Fonda in Five Acts, which actually I saw. I agree, Ms. Rule. It was great. And she also wanted to throw in Cher, our old friend Cher, 72. and Still still, going. You still haven't seen Mamma Mia 2, have you? No, look, I haven't. Have I seen a film this year? Probably not. Uh, but I tell you what I am excited about, Carol. It's that time of the year again. The ponies, <laughs> the TAB phone account is getting a workout. And I would very much like to welcome on behalf of Carol and myself and all our Don't Shoot the Messengers out there, Greg Miles, former race caller and broadcaster and author with John Craven of this wonderful new memoir, Greg Miles, My Lucky Life, Behind the Binoculars. Hi, Greg. Hello, Corey. Lovely to see you. It's very nice to be here. Now, if people have forgotten you in action back in the day, which was difficult, it was only last year. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago, but in case they've forgotten what it sounds like, Miss Jane has a little grab of you in action. But McCarty Diva clear with 100 metres to go. Excellent runs to second. Bonazur runs on, but a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Diva has won it from over Bonazur. Excellent. Mm, 2005. Did you plan that line, of that course. famous line <laughs> before the race? Absolutely. I'm not that smart to think of it in the spur of the moment. Some of those lines, you know, like Bill Collins races to equine immortality, those sort of lines are, 
uh, prepared lines. But race callers don't often do it, but every now and again something will come along in a and it's a sense of expectation that here's something about to unfold, like Maccabi Diva winning a third Melbourne Cup. It's not just, oh, she's won it again. Uh, it's got to be stamped with something. And the, the day before uh, that Melbourne Cup, on the Monday afternoon, I was doing a, uh, a radio preview on, on a panel, and we had lots of guests, you know, jockeys and trainers. And one of our guests was Bruce McAvaney. And he said, oh, I'm absolutely sure Greg's got a line prepared, <laughs> just as I had for Kathy in 2000. That's not a bad image. Yeah. But my, my stomach turned over because I hadn't thought of a line at that moment. And I thought, if the greatest broadcaster of sport in Australia said I should have a line, I'd better go and think of one. And, of course, he wrote the forward to your book and he, he talks did. about that yeah, wonderful he's a, line. a good friend and a yeah, great broadcaster. He, yeah. <laughs> he is. Um, 36 Melbourne Cups, more than any other race caller. Um, you, you just nailed it every year, Greg. And I must say, I'm not sure how you felt, Corrie, but it was on, I think I first heard about your decision. I was listening to Ross and John, and I think you went on, on 3AW on the breakfast show in Melbourne yeah. when you decided to hang up the binocs. And I, I must say, I was shocked. Yeah, that, uh, because that you, pleases you, you, me. I, cr- I cried. <laughs> you're, you're not well, old. You're not old race. enough to retire, Greg. No, I, when I when I announced that I was fifty seven. Yeah. So I just turned fifty seven. And you're now fifty eight, correct? Fifty nine. Fifty nine. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah so I, I I played on for about six months after I said I was going to leave. So uh, and retired actually in the at Easter in two thousand seventeen. So yeah, look, it was a. I know it surprised a few people, uh, even people close to me in, in racing, but um, I'd been working and planning it for a long time, from the time I turned about 50, because I, I find a lot of people, in, particularly in racing, just don't know how to stop. Uh, and it is, it's an all-consuming sport. When, you, when you're in it, you live in a bubble. Everyone in racing lives in a bubble. You really hardly know what's going on outside of it because it's it's seven days a week. I mean, I call three meetings every week for God knows how long, but if it's the preparation, getting ready to go to the races and the meetings that you don't do, you still watch and, and make form notes as well. So it's completely all-consuming and a lot of people find it hard to walk away from. So I, I, I planned an exit that I wanted to get out before – things went bad, you know, before I wanted to be two years early than two years too late and you get the tap on the shoulder and somebody says, oh, you should have gone a long time ago, buddy. So well, I went I went early. You, the social media is a horrible um, thing sometimes and yeah. um, we we might mention that in our quick questions because um, footy's going through a bit of a social media, a couple of social media scandals at the moment. But um, I think you, you said to me, I think you, you mentioned that you doubted yourself once. There was a call at Caulfield. Yeah, Caulfield Cup. Yeah, 2015, 16, and uh, I it was won by Mongolian Khan, and I I called it for half the race Magnolian Khan, but there were mitigating circumstances. I, I wasn't well, and I won't go deeply into that. But I probably shouldn't have been at the track, to be quite honest. I'd pumped myself up with a few uh, antibiotics, antibiotics or, and, yep. and prednisolone and drugs, and and side effect was that that I I couldn't breathe, to be honest. I my I was working on about half lung capacity and I was panicking that I wasn't going to be able to finish the race because I felt dreadful. And in that in that circumstance, I, I probably wasn't concentrating enough on the horse names. So Mongolian Khan got transformed into Magnolian Khan. And the the outcry was unbelievable. I, I thought I'd murdered Bambi. <laughs> uh, and it seems... 
You know, these keyboard warriors seem to uh, want to outdo one another. When somebody writes a, you know, a lot of vitriolic tripe, the next person comes along and wants to beat that, you know. And uh, it, it went on for ages. And I thought, I, I can't believe what I've created here just by making a little mistake like that. But see, right. it was such a – sorry, Corey. Um, it was such a small microcosm of the people who listened and loved the call and wouldn't have even noticed. It's such a pity that – it uh, seems to me, I think it's a pity you took it to heart, if you did take it to heart, because it, it, it was so ridiculous. Yeah, look, I guess I hadn't, I hadn't had a lot of um, harsh feedback like, like that in my career, and maybe it was out there, but you didn't know about it. But now with social media, it's right in your face. So, look, I did take it to heart, but it, 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 it's, it's water off a duck's back now. But I was right in the middle of a spring carnival. And I still had to go and call the Cox Plate and the Melbourne Cup and the Geelong Cup and all of those after having made that Caulfield Cup mistake. So I felt, I felt horrid that I, if I made another blue, these keyboard warriors would just storm all over the top of me and I would have found it almost untenable to stay in the game. So I, I, that was a really, really tough carnival, 2016. So I was determined to come back the next year and have a flawless uh, exit because I knew that was going to be my last year. So... I, I, 2017, I didn't put a foot wrong. So. Greg, do you think you retired too early? Do you wish you were back? Yeah, sometimes I do. Yeah, yeah. And I knew that had happened, but I'd done, I sort of reflect, I'd done 36 spring carnivals, more than anybody. So if I, if I felt I was missing out, it was maybe just being a little bit selfish because I've done a lot of, a lot of carnivals. So, and it was almost time to hand the baton. But I do miss it, I must say, uh, but it's getting a little bit easier. The first 12 months was, was dreadful. So much so, I was, feel, I was feeling that sorry for myself one night. I thought, I reckon I've got six months left, you know. I'll, uh, where could I go and call for six months? So I thought Mauritius, you know. They have a little <laughs> racing circuit there. A lot of Australian jockeys have gone over and it's you know, an idyllic finish in a, in a <laughs> tropical wonderland and call one day a Sounds week. great. Yeah. So I thought, I'll apply for this job. So I sent a little email out. I said, uh, my name's Greg Miles. I've caught a few Melbourne Cups. I'm now, you know, finished calling, but I'd love to uh, consider coming over and calling your meetings there for six months. Within 24 hours, I got a reply. Yes, we would love to have you call our meetings in Mauritius. <laughs> this is too good to be true. But they are broadcast in French. How's your friend? How is your French? Oh, no. <laughs> so I know Trabian and that's about it. Um, <laughs> Greg, <laughs> uh, look, I, I loved your book. Congratulations. And that, that particular episode that you refer to in the book when you were considering retirement and you made what you saw as a significant professional stuff up. I mean, for us listening to the Caulfield Cup that year, you know, people are pretty um, – Forgiving, I think, particularly after you've called so many. But I understand and I, I did reflect on your thoughts there about when is the right time to go. Mm. But it reminded me also of what a long career those of us who start in journalism or in media or in your case, you know, race calling at such an early age, we start, you do burn out at some point. You've got to say enough is enough. What? How old were you when you first started? You started at the ABC, didn't you? That yeah. was... Um, I started to took in over, the mail room. Yeah, in the mail room. But um, and apart from that very important role of delivering the internal mail, we painted the uh, car, car tires with the black paint. You know, so it was a very responsible job to Why kick off with. Why did you paint the car tires with was, black paint? That was part of our, our brief. Brief, yeah, yeah. Mail delivery boy, and 
car tyre painter. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and then I got a job in personnel and I thought, yeah, I'm going up. Personnel, they used to call it in those days, whatever yep. it was, human resources or something. Yes, there. people and culture. Yes, <laughs> I haven't even got the latest. Yet. So, but I, was, I wanted to be a broadcaster. I wanted to be a race broadcaster specifically. From, from the a, age of 12, didn't you? Very early age. I was still in primary school. And I thought, well, if I'm at the ABC, at least in a radio station, TV station, and uh, I made myself known to the sports department. And um, you know, lo and behold, the ABC is just a, such a wonderful place and, and a, a, a developing culture. They just, they'd rather go and make their own new broadcaster than go and buy one that's been prepared somewhere else, you know. So I was 20, I think, when I first went there. And um, I was 21 when I took over from Joe Brown and 22 when I called my first Melbourne Cup for them. You know, my my youngest son is older than that now, and I couldn't imagine. But, you know, when you're 20 years old, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof, you can do anything, you know. But I couldn't imagine looking back on it now and thinking I'd call a Melbourne Cup at 22. And very big shoes of Joe Brown's to fill. But you were, you were surrounded by extraordinary mentors, and at the moment there's a lot of focus on the ABC, its role, and, you know, where to from here with the ABC? Because mm. yeah, they I, make a lot, but they also lose a lot. They, they, they do. They breed them and then yeah. they go, which you didn't do. No, I stayed there for uh, 18 years yeah. and I was absolutely more than happy to be there because it was satisfying me in so many different ways. I, I could do radio for them. I could do television for them, news, uh, you know, go out and do stories and broadcast the, the, the biggest races. And the only reason I left is because they stopped covering racing and I had to leave after 18 years. Yeah, they were great mentors, as you say. Dick Mason was in charge of the sports department then. Uh, a gruff character, but still a nurturing character. And Peter Booth was just a, a, a gem, really. Smooth Booth. Smoothie, yeah. <laughs> because he's, he's, he really did enjoy uh, bringing young broadcasters through and he did it over and over in football, but he helped me in racing. Yeah. Greg, I think everybody who uh, follows the punt always wants to know, how do the race callers memorise the horses and the jockeys and the colours? Yeah, it's um, it's probably the most often asked question of me, I suppose. And it's it's simply just learning the, the colours that the jockeys wear. And the, the majority of the homework is done when the, when the jockeys come out and they mount the horses. That, that's seven or eight minutes before the jump is critical. That's when the race broadcaster goes into a really deep concentration mode so that you can r- remember those colours and the name associated with those colours in an absolute s- split second without a hesitation. Because if you start hesitating and questioning if you've got the right horse, the race can get away from you. It's like a, a runaway train that you can't get off. So you've got to be on top of it and uh, and know those colours in an absolute split Second, multiply that by how many runners there are in the race, and it's as simple as that. Oh, simple. <laughs> um, well, that's why you would be asked this question most frequently, because those of us who have a lousy memory are just in awe of something like that. And what, as the gates go up, what what is your routine? You know, what you obviously would have water beside you. Uh, the binoculars are on. You must go into an extraordinary internal space there. Yeah, yeah. Or do um, you have a helper who sort of whispers to you? No, sadly, that's we don't, and it's it's. it's it's a lonely place sometimes in those big races when you can't ask for a bit of assistance like cricket commentators and football broadcasters can uh, have a little bit of a communication quietly off air 
pointing to a form guide or something like that. I don't know who that is. Bruce McAvaney has a wonderful Josh Kay who provides him with, you know, the most incredible statistics. And Bruce has plenty, but yeah, there's, yeah. there's help. You, As you yeah. say, you're in that lonely place. You are. Joe Brown used to call it the cocoon of concentration, which I think is a terrific <laughs> terminology. Just what you're saying, you're going to that inner space and uh, you're just – Pray through the, the the lead up to it that you know all those sources. You know the the hardest moments when you're calling a big race, and you go back through a field of twenty four. That when you go back to the leader, you know who it is, <laughs> because that's a very <laughs> critical moment to get the flow going again. Corey and I've worked in a lot of sports departments with a lot of racing writers, and they're great characters, but a lot of them are big punters. Yeah. What's your view about mixing the two? And I know you've had some experience. Yeah. Look, with I. This. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, and I know a lot of people used to say, oh, I know exactly what Bill Collins bet on in that race. But a mate of mine used to do his, do his wages, and they were, most times they were wrong. Uh, Bill would, and a lot of race callers do, you, you call for the, for the punter. So the first horse you're going to look at is the favourite because that's where 30% of the audience is wanting to hear, hear about. So you do call for those more favourite runners. So... But I, look, I've had quite a few bets that I've um, when I've been calling, and uh, I don't think the I don't think that my broadcast was affected in any way because for us we're professionals and the race broadcasters first, and anything after that is just sundry. So a few little bets and quaddies and what have you, you know, if you win a hundred or lose a thousand or whatever, it's it's not a big deal because the broadcast is what matters. So the book describes the anecdote. About buying your first house, yeah, yeah, in Williamstown. Yeah, that um, that was Campaign King. He won the William Reed Stakes <laughs> in '86, and we'd. Um... How your wife had settled nerves that day when you said, "Dale, I'm thinking of putting the deposit for our house actually on the on the ponies," and yeah. she said, "Oh yeah, okay." That's yeah, fine. see, way back then she had great faith in my punting abilities <laughs> because I used to ring her when we were dating. I'd ring her up and say, uh, "I'm on my way home from the track. Get yourself dressed up. We're going out for dinner tonight, or stay in your." <laughs> Stain the jammies. Sausages and mash. <laughs> yeah. But I'd, in, uh, in that uh, story about back in Campaign King, we didn't have any money. We were trying to buy a house and we only had about $4,000 saved up and the house prices were leaping ahead of us. And I'd got a tip that this horse was unbeatable in the, in the William Reed. So I just went home and I said, I've got an idea. We'll have a little bet. She said, well, how much of it do you want to use? I said, all of it. You know, all of it. So I thought we'd get about three or four to one, but we averaged a lot shorter price than that. But and probably shouldn't have put the bet on. But it was like it, the gates were open, the horse was racing. I said, "This bet's on." So he 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 got knocked over, poor old campaign king, and he lunged at the post, and he only just got there by a nose. But anyway, it couldn't, it four, couldn't have been wow. closer. <laughs> four turned into ten, and we got the deposit for the house. So it was all good things in the end. But it could have been a tent quite easily. <laughs> a caravan for a few years. Yeah, you yeah. talk uh, one more on retirement because we've mentioned Bruce McAvaney and he's hasn't gone cold turkey. He, you know, gave up the tennis a couple of years ago and well now obviously Channel 7 have lost that big chunk of racing. Mm. So not that he was calling races but he was hosting and he's done it a little bit more slowly and we spoke about how I've um, my plan is to do it over a period of yeah. years, maybe 10 years. You, the, one of the most poignant parts of the book is when you talk about going to the races now and how sometimes you feel a bit lost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I walked onto the track for more than 36 years and had somewhere to go and had a reason to be on track. And now if I go, 
and I do go pretty often, particularly during the spring carnival, I feel lost. Uh, there's just there's no purpose in being there. There's no there's no work to be done. I, I find it really difficult to go and have a, a social day uh, at somewhere where I used to work. Um, I'm gradually getting used to it, but the first 18 months has been, yeah. Because I, you are a social character. You, you socialise, clearly reading the book, you've got a big group of friends and had a big life and travel and... Love and it. and, and yeah. you and your well, son are also part owners in a ho- racehorse too. Yeah, um, that one's gone, but we've got another one coming along. I've, I've had a share in a horse uh, in the last sort of five or six, seven years, um, but always I've had a share in, a, in paces with another buddy of mine. But yeah, I, having a, a horse to go to the track uh, is fantastic. It gives you the purpose, gives you the reason for being there, but without any sort of hook at all. Uh, when I first stopped, I started doing a few hosting uh, corporate rooms and things like that. Didn't enjoy it, but at least it gave me a reason to be there and I was at the track with something to do. Yep. But uh, to go there and just have a glass of beer and watch the races, find it pretty hard work. So you tend to leave before the end? Most times, yeah, or get there a bit late and see the big race and then go, you know. And obviously you're right. also doing a bit of RSN. I mean, you are still doing a little bit of work. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm probably busy Two, two and a half days a week. So I do radio on a Saturday morning on RSN and that means preparation. So it's about a day's preparation and then two hours on air on a Saturday morning and I do some voiceover work for the television channel you know, 78racing.com. Uh, so that's a little bit of work there. A couple of major projects that they're working on as well around cup time and a spring review program. So there's bits and pieces. I'm not totally idle. At the back of the book, one of the things I love, and, and I think readers will get a lot out of this too, is you list a whole lot of the terrific racehorses that you've witnessed over the years. And um, and I think for anybody who loves racing culture, that makes this book extra special, really terrific Christmas or birthday presents. So, Thank you. Um, well, it's just I found that so riveting, that part of the book. But I did want to ask you about your best three racehorses. I know that's tough and to, to name three, but just quickly off the top of your head, can you tell me the three best you've ever called? Well, there's been so many. Uh, I, I suppose now, Winx, but she's got better and better. When I had her, she was a superstar, but now she's just a mega superstar. And she's possibly the, the greatest that we've seen in this country. Uh, I thought maybe Black Caviar was before that, 25 straight, but she's eclipsed that easily now and she's running times that Black Caviar ran as a sprinter and she's doing it as a middle distance horse so it's quite phenomenal so I suppose we'd have to say that Winx is the top of the pops Black Caviar's right up there and boy Blanket finished for third because I was I was very fortunate that when I first started calling I was able to call Kingston Town and Manicato and uh, and then go through all these Maccabi Divas and Sunline and uh, Northerly was one of my favourites and might and power and you know it's just incredible the the horses that have been around in the last 30 to 40 years that I've had the privilege of calling but probably winks tops well, the pops uh, well I'm going out to the valley on Saturday uh, with my son and uh, I want to know whether I'm putting money on winks or not what's your tip well from a punting point of view she's a dollar 20 so I'm not going to win it, much it's not you're not going to win much but um i you shouldn't be uh, betting against a great horse like uh, like Winks, but from a punting perspective, I'd, I'd be saying I'd be having something on Ben Battle at nine dollars, and there are often places where you can put a bet on if they run second or third, you get your money back. So uh, that, that's a bet to nothing almost. It's um, it, well, we're all sitting here feeling I don't know about you. I feel a bit sick about Saturday. I mean, it's more 
what, what if something goes wrong? Yeah, then, yeah. But it would probably be it, – it's probably highly unlikely. Well, you know, Humidor got within a half a length of her last year. Yeah. She had to pull all sorts out to win the Turnbull Stakes recently. So it's, it's, not, it's not impossible – it's and I worried probably improbable. I worried about the announcement of the statue before the Cox Plate. Oh yes, you think they're going a little too far? Well, well, <laughs> what do you think? Well, it was like when Octagonal retired, and uh, he was running in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes in Sydney for the last time, and I flew up with a mate of mine, and there were uh, cerise streamers everywhere, and Octagonal's name all over the place, race books with his uh, photo on the cover, and we walked in, and they were handing out pink donuts. With a big O. And I said to my mate, they've gone too far. <laughs> too hard, too the, fast. The donuts is going to kill it. And he got beaten in his last start. <laughs> oh, don't. The donuts did it. Greg, Carol and I want to congratulate you on your book. Uh, it's called My Lucky Life Behind the Binoculars. Greg has written it with John Craven, a longtime sports journalist of great note. My it's, old colleague and friend John Craven. That's right. He yeah. is. Um, who, who clearly adores Greg and talked him into doing this book, it sounds like to me. He did on the second bottle of Red He Got Me. Yeah. <laughs> It does feel like a couple of old mates chatting, but no, it's um, it's beautifully put together. And, I, and as I said, I particularly enjoyed uh, the uh, encyclopedic uh, rundown at the back. It's thirty nine ninety nine potties um, at all good bookshops near you. Thanks very much for coming in, particularly Greg at my book bookshop in. Oh, Hawksburn. particularly at my bookshop, which actually is my bookshop. And Greg's um, going to sign some copies, so you'll be able to sell signed copies. Over thanks, the... Caro, for the plug. Mm. Yes. Oh, happy to do so. Thanks, Corey. It's been terrific. Thanks, Caroline. Good Thank to you, see you Greg. Greg. Nice to see you. No Potties, that is not Miss Jane singing with her guitar again. That is actually the theme song to Sea Change. Very nice to hear it again. Isn't it? I've got little goosebumps. Oh, Sea Change. There is going to be a Sea Change revival. Um, Carol, you tell us a bit about that. But first of all, um, we had a couple of Facebook messages when Miss Jane put this out there during the week. Justin Irwin said, hmm, not sure about that. Really enjoyed it years ago. Are remakes ever as good as the original? Good question, Justin. And Jan Harfield said, mixed thoughts. If Deb Cox is in charge, though, it would be okay. And, of course, uh, we do know that Deb Cox, who was the writer with Andrew Knight, the producer, she is back on board for this new series, which Channel 9 are going to make. Caro, tell us all about it. Well, Deb Cox is actually going to be the executive producer or one of the executive producers. So that makes you think that the integrity, isn't that off-used words these days, the integrity of sea change will be will remain intact. It's not really a remake. I think it's an extension. It's They've brought back the show. I was amazed. Oh, yes, 20 years later. So what happens well, to Laura? The well, it ended in 2000. Solicitor. It started in 98. It's amazing to think it only went for three seasons and they made less than 40 episodes because it did have a – it was a very profound sort of program. I mean, it had an, a profound effect on you. I remember you wrote a very moving column about it in The Age when you were still doing that lovely back page piece in the Sunday Age every week and how it punctuated a certain part of your life. So Sigrid Thornton is coming back and you couldn't really have it without Sigrid Thornton. She's coming back as a magistrate, Laura Gibson. She has left, was it Pearl Bay? 
Pebble Bay, Pearl, Pearl, Bay, Pearl Bay, which we know it was made in the St. Leonard's and Bowen Heads. Bowen yeah. Heads, yep. Um, she's coming back to Pearl Bay at a time, according to the synopsis, Pearl Bay needs her as much as she needs Pearl Bay. John Howard, the um, weird and corrupt magistrate. <laughs> no, 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 ta- um, Lord Mayor. Lord Mayor, oh, not, I should not say. Not Lord, sorry, Mayor. Yeah, well, sorry, Laura's a, Laura who was married to was Kerry, a magistrate. Who was married to Kerry Armstrong, one of Kerry's great roles. I wonder whether Kerry's going to come back. History doesn't relate whether Kerry's coming back. I, I never felt David Wenham was clearly, you know, one of the – I mean, that, that show really – set his star into um, orbit, didn't it, David Wenham? And he became As a... David Dan, and then he went on to... A big uh, international star. Well, the next step, of course, was Moulin Rouge. So he was filming Moulin Rouge at the same time as doing David Dan. In fact, that may, that might have been why he left the series after Series 1, because of his film commitments. And William McGuinness came in and did a, a very good job as Laura's new love interest. It's not said whether either of those two actors are coming back. We only know John Howard, we only know Sigrid Thornton, and we know that Channel 9 is turning it into a series. Lots of um, more very sketchy details to come, but no more about the characters. I mean, I remember Helen Garner's daughter, I think Alice Garner, was a fantastic role as one of the young people in the show. And, you know, I just wonder what she's going to, whether she's going to come back. Uh, Jill Forster, in one of her last great roles. Yes. What a great age. as Laura's friend and mentor. It was look. It was a, it was a great show, yeah. and it was interesting that when they originally visualised it, it was going to be made somewhere far more glamorous, like Byron Bay or somewhere somewhere in the north of New South Wales or southern Queensland. But they then decided, for budget reasons, to turn it into a quirky sort of really daggy seaside town, and that sort of made it work so well. Remember the father son sort of conversation at the, at the end, end of each show, yeah. The two Kevins. Uh, but the other thing, Caro, too, is of course with the Barwon Heads with the bridge that leads over the river, the Barwon River, uh, that became part of the story because the bridge was closed down and the town, you know, there was this like the mayor wanted to redevelop. That was the whole sort of synopsis of the backstory of wanted to redevelop this whole area of Pearl Bay and get the bridge going and everything. And the locals really didn't want the bridge to be fixed because they quite liked their sleepy community. And it has great parallels with Barwon Heads particularly, but also St Leonard's because afterwards the prices of houses down there went through the roof. Yeah, and Barwon Heads is now very trendy. I mean, it's a, a we, we have we both have friends who either live or holiday there. The the golf club is one of the more beautiful golf clubs in this country in terms of the building and the decor and the way you feel you're stepping into a, another piece of time. You know, when you go there, and the shops in that main street. I mean, I used to go and stay there as a kid with a, a very good friend all through my childhood, and. It's incomparable to what it is now. There's, you know, cool cafes and gift shops. Don't you think if you had a place down there, you'd have mixed feelings about a new sea change coming on board? You'd be a bit nervous that lots of tourists would come and where's Sigrid? Well, no, I I think that sort of happened. I think that that happened and it's only going to – everybody's talking about sea changes now. I mean, it's funny how sea change became the thing. And then it became tree change. And look, I'm really looking forward to seeing it and I'll be watching it. Now it's time, Corrie, for our crush of the week. There is a lot, it's a very, we've had Greg Miles on. It's a very girly show today and there's a lot of, there's a big female focus. Are you saying Greg Miles is a girl? No. No, no, no. So we've done our male. It's a very female focus. He was a bit surprised at Miss Jane's flowers, wasn't he? Miss Jane's brought in the most beautiful pink flowers today. And um, as he was signing copies of his wonderful book, bits of little petals and leaves, he said, I've got a bit of parsley on this. It's not parsley. 
It's blossom, Greg. Anyway. But that's what we do here. We love flowers and we have a bit of a girly studio. Crush of the Week is sponsored by the Interchange Bench Specialists in Temporary Staffing and Executive Contracting. And Corrie, you have a crush. I have a girly crush. I do indeed. My crush this week is Julia Gillard, Caro. For reasons of... uh, I just thought it was a really extraordinary moment this week when uh, the Parliament apologised to those uh, who had been part of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sex sex abuse and there were a whole lot of people in the public gallery at Parliament House in Canberra, not only victims but, of course, their families and so on, everybody who has been through so much. And in the audience, not expecting any cheers or uh, accolades, was Julia Gillard. Julia Gillard, as Prime Minister in November 2012, as we know, she ordered this Royal Commission. She faced a barrage of criticism. Um, Royal Commissions, of course, are costly and they suck up resources. Many within Parliament feared the wrath of the Catholic Church and the other big organisations, but Julia went ahead and said, no, this is what we're doing, and it was probably, um, some would argue, the finest decision of her brief prime ministership. Anyway, the other day, of course, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and uh, opposition leader Bill Shorten were there um, to make their apologies, and it was a very cohesive uh, across-all-parties moment. And then they asked, someone asked for Julia Gillard to stand up and she received the applause that she deserved. And I thought it was a really uh, together moment. And I thought Julia's very brief speech, slightly embarrassed, very humble. Well, they forced her up, didn't they? They They did. They really did. I don't think she expected it at all. She spoke briefly, succinctly and beautifully. And I thought that brought the whole room together in 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 a way that took the party politics out of it. So well done, Julia Gillard. I noticed she was smashed on Melbourne Radio earlier this week by another former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, because she had uh, drawn attention to his mental health and he found it just extraordinary that she was even allowed to be chairman of Beyond Blue and make comments like that. Anyway, I, I agree with you. Ke- Kevin has released the second part of his vast memoir <laughs> and he really has um, has tried to suck the oxygen out of the Julia Gillard moment and what's been happening this week and I just thought that it was bad timing on his part. Anyway, I'll leave that for He's another day. He's got a healthy day. ego, hasn't he, Kevin? Oh, uh, look, I tell you what. Anyway, I won't go there. That was crush of the week for the Interchange Bench, Corrie. And just again, please go to interchangebench.com.au for talent so good you'd wish you could keep them. You'll find the links to the Interchange Bench, Corrie, in our show notes. I will indeed. BSF and you have a book. I've got an oldie but a goodie, Corrie, and I was very happy when I was in your bookshop the other day looking for Greg Miles's book to see that The Beautiful Visit, which is the first novel by Elizabeth Jane Howard, was actually sitting in its shelves. Um, I picked it up at the book club weekend. You'll always find Elizabeth Jane Howard at my bookshop. Caro. Yes. Now, now, this is an extraordinary book. I love reading first novels by novelists who go on to become acclaimed. She's written some wonderful books, Something in Disguise, After Julius, The Four Cazulet Chronicles, of course, the later one coming. Were there five in the end? Did yeah, she... five. And it, we should remind everyone that it's the Duchess of Cornwall's favourite books, the Cazulet series. As or in... you pronounce it Cazulet. Ca- is it, is that, Cazulet? Is that Cazulet. Camilla? Yes. Oh, okay. So while she's at the hunting lodge. Yes. Oh, Carol, I have an apology. Jeff Slattery pointed out last week I referred to um, Megan as the Duchess of Suffolk, which, uh, shoot me, Duchess of Sussex. Sussex. 
I'm sorry. Thank you, Jeff, for pointing that out yet again, pedant behaviour, but I accept that. I was wrong. The beautiful visit was written in 1950, but it's it, it's a story of a young woman before, during and after the First World War. And it's extraordinary. It reminds me a bit of that wonderful Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant film, Holiday, in that, which is again about a woman's coming of age, because it, it's a feminist story. And I love watching you know, 40s and 50s and even 30s films which have a feminist bent because it must have been so radical at the time. It's interesting to read about this woman who doesn't want marriage. Well, she does, but not at any cost. And when a a good marriage idea comes her way, she rejects it. She's from a well-to-do, a very, a good family, but a poor family. And the constraints upon her and a family she just wants to get away from. And the difficulty for a young woman and the the money struggles and the social struggles, um, it's all centred around a visit she has to some distant cousins in the country where her eyes are open to what a good, a wonderful family and a fun life can be. But it's and about... Does she, and does she tie that in with marriage and motherhood? Uh, well, not... You no, know, it, it's about... it's about. Look, it's, it's quite existentialist. There's a lot of long... Um, thought bubbles and, and personal soliloquies about where what women should want and what they should want to do and men. And it's also about, you know, in the horrors of the First World War. But I reckon reading it again, many years after I first read it, I thought, oh, maybe it does need a bit of an edit. But And the ending is a bit weird, but I really recommend it, The Beautiful Visit. And I think it's just, if you want a good read over this summer... It would be one of my absolute favourites. The other one of Elizabeth Jane Howard's I love, a single one, not part of the Casule series, is After Julius. I yes, think that's I just mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's right. And it's um, I love that because the the main character's husband has died, and I guess it's set in the fifties, Carol, or sixties. I can't remember when it's set, but certainly at a time when women were seen to, if you were widowed, that was kind of like the end of your life or the fun because you were supposed to act in a certain way. Yep. And our main protagonist in that book decides that's definitely not what she's going to do. But there's all of this questioning, self-doubt, what does society expect of me? I think it's a rather lovely book too. She's a very pertinent writer and timeless. Well, remember she married briefly uh, Kingsley Amos. Yes. And they asked him whether um, he regretted leaving his wife and family for Elizabeth Jane Howard and he said only every day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which was, which I, I think I read it in either a king... I think that's the first time we've had the F word. Can we start saying it now? Because no. sometimes it's appropriate. Well, it's a quote. I should have said <laughs> it's only, a quote. Yes, only it's every a quote. effing day. I don't know. Jane might decide to. Miss Jane No, keep it in. What the hell? It's a podcast. Censor me. Who's going to get cross with us? Hutchie at Croc Media. She's, she's wonderful, Elizabeth Jane Howard. I've also been to the movies and I've seen a oh, film... Oh, surprise, surprise. Well... Well, Colin, you live at the movies. We, I do not. I haven't hardly seen any movies lately. And we've got to stop talking about Netflix, although I have become addicted to Killing finally, Eve. after all, no, I've finished, done that, um, The Bridge. Oh, the, isn't it great? You're finally watching it. The original oh, Scandi one. Don't we love it. Well, it's funny because that starts off with a body. And you know she has Asperger's because you don't realise yes. that for uh, quite a while. Well, I, I sort of, I, I, I pretty much, I pretty much could tell that there was something very odd about her from the second episode, but that's a detective. Mm. But the body is found Saga. Half, Saga. half in Sweden and half in Denmark. Yeah. That's the opening, a murdered body on, on a bridge. The reason I mention that is because the film I have seen, Bad Times at the El Royale, is a seedy rundown hotel, which is half in Nevada, 
and half in California. So there's the gambling side and the drinking side. And it's, it's, look, it's almost worth seeing for the seedy, amazing hotel itself. Seven sort of unknown characters, none of whom are really what they seem. Well-known actors in this? All find themselves in the El Royale. Oh, yeah, there's um, Chris Hemsworth. Oh, oh, he's a creepy <laughs> character. Dakota, Isn't he a friend of yours? He, I did bail him up at the grand final once, but so have a big crush on you. He's a very, he's a very good actor. Um, Dakota Johnson, who's the daughter of Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson, is wonderful in it. Jeff Bridges is fantastic in it. Um, he plays the priest, but is everybody what they seem, Corrie? This is a mystery. It's a. It sounds a bit Agatha Christie. It's very violent, but not too. Well, no, it is very violent. Um, it is a story of a cover-up, several cover-ups, with all these unbelievable red herring, um, other sort of side sub-stories. Sub so are we going solving a mystery it. through it? Well, is that what the well, premise of the movie is? Well, the, the other main character in it is um, John Hamm, who says that he is a, he says he's a salesman, you know, John Hamm from Mad Men, the Don Draper from Mad Men. Um, but is he what he seems? He's there clearly trying to find something in this seedy, deserted, run-down hotel, which so only is, has... Is he FBI or something like that? Well, just go and see it. Oh, okay. it, it's a, it, is, it is a very good film. We but is really it a murder mystery? It. What am I following? Or it's a scandal, you no, can't tell me, corruption well, scandal. Well, something happens at the hotel 10 years earlier and then fast forward and um, there's, a, there's a murder and something is hidden at the hotel 10 years earlier, but... That's only a very small part of the story mm. that goes right to the top of American life, okay. right to Sounds the very, great. very top. I really enjoyed it. Anyway, Bad Times at the El Royale, I would recommend it. And I don't, though, Corrie, have a recipe, so I'm handing that over to you. And you right, seem yeah. to have a very smart, big book in your hand. I do. I love this book. So this book uh, came into the bookshop uh, probably about six weeks ago. It's called The Ultimate Book of Party Food. It is massive. And it's by a French uh, cook called Melanie Dupuy. And uh, what, one of the things I love about this, Carol, I was showing you this, sh- this book in the shop the other day, and even you were going, wow, is the way it is laid out with the photography of, first of all, the ingredients and then a step-by-step. So if you get a bit lost, Barsnex. you can actually look at the – yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful Barsnacks book, but you can look at how it's, it's produced. So you said you wanted me to do a slider, and there are lots of slider recipes in this book. But I thought for party season, um, I can never go past a, a ball, a meatball. As you know, I'm a bit of a meatball fan and I do cook a few different ones myself. But this one in particular, I thought sounded really good. So this is veal and pine nut mini balls. Oh, um, if you're going out to the races, you can um, certainly prepare these and just wrap them up in foil and keep them warm. I don't warm. recall you ever making me meatballs. Yes, I've made you meatballs. You I have before. I love Marx's recipe. Oh, yeah. I remember pinwheels and I remember your <laughs> lovely spinach thing and your mushroom Oh, well, thing. maybe you didn't come to those parties and where I made salmon. many balls. Well, anyway, so this is, this is the recipe for veal and pine nut mini balls and we will have it in the show notes and Facebook and all of that sort of thing. So this quantity makes 30 mini balls. 40 grams or a quarter of a cup of pine nuts. Yes, Caro, you have to toast the flippin' pine nuts. I know it's a drag, isn't it? Because we always burn the first batch. One small bunch of mint, one small bunch of coriander, 60 grams of onion, which is about one onion chopped up, five grams of garlic, which is about two cloves, 500 grams of minced veal topside, 30 grams of egg yolk, 25 grams of tomato paste, five grams of harissa, 
which I love, Harissa. Pinch of ground cumin. Do you have have Harissa in the tube? You know how you can buy it in a tube? No, I go to this little spice shop and I just have the little bits of it. Yeah. uh, I have to learn um, more how how to use harissa more frequently, I think. Five grams of salt, two grams of um, pepper, and 30 grams of extra virgin olive oil. Oh, hello to um, the gang at Mr. Cobram's. <laughs> we haven't <laughs> said hello to them for a while. Preheat the oven to 180. Uh, toast the pine nuts. Yes, there you go. Preheat the oven to one uh, – oh, and allow them to cool. And then you turn the oven back down to 170. Finally chop – the mint and the coriander, peel the onion and cut into um, little dicey, small, tiny bits. Peel the garlic cloves, remove the germ and uh, mince all of that as finely as you can. Knead, it to get, knead together all the meatball ingredients except the olive oil. So throw everything in the bowl, the mince, uh, veal and all that sort of Did stuff. you say remove the germ? Yeah, I've never seen that before. I'm actually reading from the recipe. Peel the garlic cloves, remove the germ. Jeff Slattery, we need you, please. Uh, Jane's actually doing. <laughs> Jane's doing little. Can you tell us what the germ is? I'm assuming it's like the little green bit. Is it? If it starts to sprout, I'm a bit disappointed you haven't actually done this before, Corey. Before you're reading out the recipe, I no, mean, I, we've sometimes done this, Carol, with books that have come into the shop. <laughs> Don't be so rude. Um, I think this looks terrific. Pour the olive oil into the small bowl, dip your fingers in the oil, take about 20 grams of the meatball mixture and roll in the palm of your hand and arrange on a baking tray lined with baking paper. Oh, and good. So you don't have to actually fry it in a frying pan. None of that. That's why I love this recipe, Caro, because all of my meatball recipes over the years or chicken balls or whatever, you have to do the pre-frying bit and that just is such a drag. And then you bake the meatballs in the preheated oven for about 20 minutes and you serve hot with a cocktail skewer um, or you can allow them to cool and serve them the next day because they're very good stuck in the fridge. So I would suggest that's a good one. Obviously, you want to have it with some sort of tomato-y or tzatziki kind of um, something to dip it in. Um, yeah, so you don't I want think, a dry old ball on its own. Yeah, maybe that beautiful um, spicy tomato sauce made yeah, by something like that. Be- Beringers. I love that one. Or, uh, as you say, something with yogurt and cucumber. Perfect. Or... So I think that is the perfect races and spring-summer cocktail party uh, do there. Um, now... I made my I made the best um, dinner the other night. This is, I've decided this is one of my favourite healthy recipes. You probably do it all the time too. I don't know what it's called. It's an Italian dish, but it's just rocket salad with parmesan, and you just cook a barbecue with steak, and slice, slice it up. Slice it up with the rocket and parmesan, yeah. and I a lo- sprinkle I of olive that. oil and salt and pepper. I think there are a few, one of my favourite. Yeah, meals. I agree, Cara. One of my favourite combos is I feel it steak with rocket. I mean, yeah, the parmesan as well, but I just think, I think rocket, I use it's the peppery, the peppery yes. rocket that sort of pops yes. out. Sorry, I'm um, reaching over for my GLT, which is coming up soon. Sorry about this. <laughs> okay. But th- can you tell us the name of this book again? It's called The Ultimate Book of Party Food, Master the Art of Entertaining. And there are uh, probably over 100 recipes there of little sandwiches, uh, little um, – there's a wonderful recipe in there for uh, tuna that you, um, you you pepper the outside and you cook it just for 30 seconds and then you serve it. So it's like a, it's like a sashimi sort of thing. And slice it up. Oh, beautiful. I mean, there's just so many great recipes. So it's a really beautiful book if you are entertaining. Corrie, you're happy about this new book, Party Food, but you're grumpy as well. Yeah, I am grumpy and I'm going internationally again for my grumpiness, Caro. I was really cross this week to hear some uh, unknown or unnamed MPs um, who have got the razor blades out for um, 
for Theresa May, um, talking using such vile and dehumanising language toward her after uh, a weekend when there were suggestions that the Prime Minister, uh, they referred to her, that she should have been knifed and she should have been hanged. And the Sunday Times quoted one un- unnamed Tory MP as saying, the moment is coming when the knife gets heated, stuck in her front and twisted. She'll be dead soon. And then another one said that Theresa May was entering the killing zone and a third remarked, assassination is in the air. And this is all, of course, because of her Brexit policies. Violent language. Um, another one actually talked about bringing a noose. Into That's exactly when right. She, when she went to meet a, a group of um, Eurosceptic backbenchers. Well, she has stared them down, as I understand, and they've all sort of backed off. Good on you, Theresa May. But um, there's been a lot of concern and outcry about this particular language, particularly because, of course, as we know, it's probably two years ago now since the murder of Labor MP Joe Cox in 2016. It was about this time of year or maybe a bit earlier. And, um, of course, she was um, stabbed to death in the street. Uh, and the language that these backbenchers have used is really inappropriate. Uh, even Jeremy Corbyn came out and said um, this language, this kind of language has no place in our politics. And um, Yvette Cooper, who is the chair of the House of Commons uh, Home Affairs Select Committee, said on BBC Radio just the other day that the language was unacceptable and that everybody should um, have a good hard look at themselves. So at the moment, they're putting a lot of pressure on the party whip to try and find out who these unnamed sources were. Um, and that sort of toxic masculinity in Parliament, Caro, is just not on. Well, Corrie, I of all people know what happens when people use violent language. And, you know, it, the, the outcry it creates now is perfectly appropriate. So I think that's a very appropriate grumpy. I agree. Well, thanks for that. I thought it was quite a good grumpy too. Now, um, <laughs> And how classic. I mean, I know I've said this before, but, you know, this is a woman who's been brought in to clean up the mess made by men. And you know, yet again, uh, and I know that she's made some real stumbles along the way and it hasn't been perfect and she's made some bad calls, but this is not something Therese May created. Exactly right. And the, the blokes uh, who created it, it was all too hard. They oh, couldn't and, stand the and, heat. And Boris jumped out of the kitchen, as you say. Boris jumped, but still sort of sniping around. I bet he was one of those people who actually made those comments. Oh, uh, Corrie, I don't, we can't be assuming that. Six quick questions, It's disappointing. Cara. Yes. Uh, were the Liberals wrong to blame Malcolm Turnbull for the Wentworth loss? Absolutely wrong. If you're going to blame anybody, well, I mean, where do you begin really? But you probably should be looking at Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison for all those bizarre switches of policy and changes of mind and all of that sort of thing over the last... 10 days or so. Um, Nick Griner, the Liberal Party president, said, Caro, that accused Malcolm Turnbull of being precious and suggested his behaviour could have made a difference if, in fact, he'd come out publicly and refuted the campaign of his son, Alex, who was telling voters in Wentworth to back Karen Phelps. Um, and there was a lot of feeling that Malcolm Turnbull and Lucy probably should have endorsed the Liberal candidate. But really, honestly, I just don't think it's Malcolm. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull sort of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Imagine if he had interfered in the Wentworth by-election. They'd all be saying, get off the stage, you've had your moment. Well, the, the, this is a problem of the Liberal Party's entire making. I did think it was funny when the losing candidate did um, thank Malcolm Turnbull and the sort of rather embarrassing silence that happened afterwards. I also thought it was funny that Scott Morrison, you know, left the Invictus Games because there'd been some delay because of weather and went and spoke just as Karen Phelps was about to deliver her 
uh, success speech, which of course, and the swing wasn't as big in the end as it first looked like because a lot of the postal votes changed all that and a lot of the postal votes were Jewish and obviously mm. the vote had taken place on a Saturday. She she made that blue of thanking the people of Warringah, <laughs> which was a bit unfortunate. I put that down to overexcitement though on the night, didn't you? Uh, well, yes, and I was sorry that Scott Morrison actually didn't mention her by name when he congratulated the winners. It sounded like he was making a victory speech. It was very strange. Anyway. Well, you won't, you won't be surprised, Carrie, to hear that Barnaby Joyce popped in too with a comment um, and said that um, Mr Turnbull's reputation would be shattered because he had resigned and had refused to endorse the new Liberal candidate. And Barnaby, of course, said he was more aware than most of what happens when a government with a one-seat majority has a member retire. He took it upon himself to do exactly that. He did it because he was sulking. Coming from Barnaby Joyce, really? I just think that's a bit rich. Anyway, on to the next question. Caro, you are, um, you're delivering this year's very prestigious Andrew Ollie Media Lecture in Sydney, which is a huge honour. Congratulations. We're all very proud of Thank you. Thank you, Corrie. Um, how's it going, the writing of the speech? Well, I've, I've virtually finished writing my speech. Because, oh, well done, because, because on Monday you were in a bit of a tears. Well, look, I had the, I had the, I'd sort of broken the back of it, but I needed, I really need to find out as much as I wanted to talk to people who were friends with Andrew Ollie because although obviously I followed his career and know a lot about him, I didn't really know many people who were friendly with him. So that's been this week's job, and it's been, it's actually been a joy to find out more about Andrew and why, because he was big in Melbourne because of Four Corners and the 7.30 report and And, and he'd been on TDT tonight. all those years ago. Yeah, but, but it, it was on Sydney radio where he really made his mark. And, you know, that, that 15 minutes of radio with him and Paul Lynham, I think before and after 9am every morning, both, so amazing to think that they're both dead. Um, I also forget how young he was and how suddenly he died. And, and the whole point of this media address, the first person to deliver it was David Williamson. And the last, well, last year was the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, so no pressure. But um, it's... Oh, and now we have Caroline Wilson from Don't Shoot the Messenger. I know, I know. Well, anyway, look, I I think... (laughs) How honoured are we? Jane, we are in the presence of greatness. The ABC is very keen to see it a week before the actual event, um, they say, for legal reasons. (laughs) I think they're just worried I might... Anyway, so... Yes, it's very. What, what, re- what if they read the speech in advance and said, "Thumbs down." It's not much, is it? I'll let you know. I'll let you know, Corrie. Do they, go, they get someone off the interchange bench, Corrie. <laughs> I've got a question for you. I love the way I bring the sponsor's name. American <laughs> actor Kevin Klein turned seventy-one this week. What is your favourite Kevin Klein movie? Can you believe he's turning seventy-one? Well, yes. Oh, I don't know. I'm finding it difficult when I reach, when we do these birthdays. Oh, definitely Otto in A Fish Called Wanda, Caro. Agree. Caro, we haven't talked footy this week, so are there any are there any new AFL footy scandals of which I should be aware? Well, I can't believe this hasn't crossed your desk, but they, they all involve um, cocaine and sext and sext sexting and social media. So we, we've got um, the big mummy, Shane Mumford, or as he's known on this rather um, confronting video that did the rounds earlier this week, Sausage, which was his nickname for when he was at Geelong. He, of course, then became a premiership player uh, with Sydney. He then went to GWS as part of the Buddy Franklin deal. And um, he is filmed, a film has come out that a friend took, some friend um, doing a very, very, very big line of cocaine. That was back in 2015. But the reason it's sort of interesting is because he's a ruck coach now in GWS and there's talk that he's going to be redrafted 
by GWS. What's this going to mean in terms of the three strikes policy? Will he be punished, etc.? Another player, a Port Adelaide player, high-profile player, has been exposed by his former partner who thought that they had had a long and um, relatively faithful relationship. Well, somehow his iCloud got caught up with her computer and a lot of women, some of them prostitutes, talks of lines of cocaine. Oh, this is so grubby. I know, I know. But the reason it it might become a story is because the story about him wanting to do a line on a certain part of one of the women he's texting's anatomy. And so whether the AFL Integrity Unit will come in and investigate that because it clearly implies drug use. It's a horrible story and why you would Gosh, send... This will, break, this will break people's lives. Why? Yeah, and, and a lot of the women who he's in touch with, who he's unfaithful with, are actually named. So they've all, they're all getting, you know, shamed and, you know, horrible abusive texts as well. It's, a, it's an awful story. Awful story. Anyway, Corrie, now um, on a happier note, you've no doubt you've got a podcast tip for the week. I do. I love these girls. So this is Jane Garvey and Fee Glover, who are two uh, UK broadcasters. They're probably about our age, Caro, and they've got they have a podcast called Fortunately with Fee and Jane. And basically, Fee and Jane just sit in the forecourt of the BBC building in London and have their coffee, and they just start chatting. So there's often not a particular uh, structure like we have, for example, on Don't Shoot the Messenger. They just start chatting and then all of a sudden one of their former colleagues, you know, one of the Dimblebees or, or Richard Attenborough or somebody will walk past on their way rushing to a meeting or a recording and they'll say, hey, come over here and quickly have a quick chat. So you never <laughs> know who you're going to end up with. But one of the things I love most about them is that they are just like us. They are working mothers who are trying to balance the lot. And some of their stories are hilarious. There is an episode, I think it's number 56, and Jane is telling Fee, she starts off by saying, um, look, I had a domestic disaster on Sunday morning. And you can just feel Fee roll her eyes going, oh, God, not another domestic drama story. Go on, Jane, tell us. So Jane, they'd had... like you and your parking ticket. <laughs> Remember <laughs> that. <laughs> someone had told, told them both that what you should do for dry skin is you should rub coconut oil into your body every morning to stop dryness. So Jane thought Sunday morning, no one's going to see me. So she absolutely slathered it all over her face, went into her teenage daughter's room who was away for the weekend and thought, I must change that child's sheets. She picked up the doona uh, and un- unbeknownst to her that there'd been a tear in the doona or the undercover or a pillow or something. I can't remember the details. And the feathers just came out everywhere all oh, no. over her. Oh, at no. which she was covered in coconut oil and she looked in the mirror and she said, I can't tell you how angry I was. I looked like a really <laughs> small, angry yeti. And she, and and so, of course, Fee is pissing herself laughing at this image, you know. And Jane said, I didn't actually find it really funny. I found it annoying. I felt like I'd hit a whole new domestic low. And then, of course, because they're two former kind of tabloid girls, or they, at least they live in London journalism, Fleet Street days, they were coming up with headlines, you know, like angry middle-aged woman in bad mattress topper incident. You know, I'd, Look, I was just <laughs> roaring and I find so often I'm smiling or laughing with them. But they also talk about events of the day and have a really sensible sort of view on it. So it's a great podcast. It's called Fortunately with Fee and Jane and I highly recommend it. You will love it. I have a fabulous GLT. It and it's is, not to do with your eyes or your bottoms. No, it's a, it, it's guilt-free plant food. It's non-toxic. It's safe Gu- for sorry, children. Guilt-free, guilt-free what? Plant food. Who's guilt-free? It, 
the plants. You, everyone. You, you don't have to worry about your dogs. You don't have to worry about your cats. Even the packaging is biodegradable. It's unique mineral dust from paramagnetic volcanic rock. It's called eco dust. And according to the packaging, you will be turbocharging your soil. It's fully Australian made and owned. And the people behind it are my friends, Charlotte and Andrea Roberts. Andrea Roberts is the woman who invented dog rocks. And brought- Charlotte used to, didn't Charlotte come and do stock take in the bookshop with your daughter Rose sometimes? Quite probably. Oh, I love Charlotte. Yeah, Hi, well, Charlotte. Well, Charlotte um, turned up at my house last week. I wasn't there, but I arrived home and there was a packet, two kilogram packet, very heavy of eco dust. One for you, one for Miss Jane, because Char's a, a, fan, a fan of the podcast apparently. As I said, safe for all animals and humans, it only contains natural rock dust. Um, if you want to get some, it's making its way into nurseries, but you just get online and um, type in www.ecodust.com.au. Well done, Robertses. Uh, what inventors in our midst? Ecodust, Australian made and owned. Next week, we have Anna from the Op Shop coming in. I don't think you're with us, Caro, are you? I won't be here. Thank you, Caro, for your company today. And thank you, Miss Jane, as always, wonderful with uh, their... Um well, everything really, <laughs> everything from gardening tips to panelling and, of course, to our uh, special guest, Greg Miles. And don't forget to go and have a look at his book. It really is terrific. I would like to promote our November lunch event. Our first live event, Corrie. Yes. Can um, you believe it? It's going to be held at the Flying Duck on Wednesday, November the – Jane, I'm going to have to return to you. No, November the 21st. 28th. 28th. 28th, Corrie. I knew that. You could have asked me. Oh, I don't have any in my show notes. I can't remember. <laughs> Stick to the uh, Facebook page. We're going to send out a, an invite, a proper event invite, and we'll put all of the links Jane, in the show notes. Jane, do you notes. not listen to the show at all? It's an invitation. <laughs> It is an invitation. That is my worst thing. Don't but be mean to Jane. She'll never come on air again. No, She'll go Jane, skulking back to a little producer's corner. Jane knows how I she feel. She has about one it. little minute of fame and you've just rocked her boat. I think he looks I think she's laughing her head off. <laughs> so Jane, um it's the twenty eighth of November, it's a Wednesday. It's at the Flying Duck Hotel in Paran, Melbourne, inner Melbourne. And, and it, all proceeds, because it is a paying event, but all proceeds will be going to Breast Cancer Network Australia Potties. Um, Carol, it's our first live event. Carol and I are wavering our appearance fee. <laughs> oh, please. Please. What appearance fee? It's exactly. Our first live event. I'm very excited. We're so excited. And the and Interchange do, Bench is um, also a big part in, of it. Inter- Interchange Bench are also sponsoring it, but we do thank the Inge family and the Flying Duck Gang at Paran. They've been so generous. They love this idea. So we hope we get probably 120 um, potties we can fit in our uh, beer garden. And we're going to have some special food, guests. Light luncheons, yes. 70s style. And our, we're going to have lots of guests, but one in particular is going to be Andrew Rule, who is the author of the new wonderful Alan and Unwin book on Winks. So um, that's worth putting in your diary. But as Jane said, uh, refer to Facebook and other, or just if you're, not, if you're not on Facebook, just contact us at feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au for any inquiries. Good luck with your Andrew Ollie. Thanks, Corrie. Go team. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Hi, I'm Mike Clayton. Hi, I'm Charlie Happel. And join us for episode three of The Book Pod with Corey Perkin. 
Golfers, especially professional golfers, are mostly psychotic, so there are endless stories about the mad things that have happened on the tour. You need to have a, a major in psychology, you need the skin of a rhinoceros, you need the motivational powers of Winston Churchill, you need all this stuff wrapped up in a, a bag carrier. My brother said I should just drop in at this point that your nickname is Chainsaw Mike, but I'm not going to do yeah, that. Well, well, the people that call me that never seem to see the trees we plant. What are your thoughts, are just off topic slightly, of Greg Norman posing nude? Good call, bad call? We agreed on that, wouldn't we? Bad call. It's <laughs> been a dick, right? <laughs> why? 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 That is why, why would why? you do it? Nick Faldo tweeted one word, why? Join Mike Clayton, Charlie Happel and Corey Perkin for Episode 3 of The Book Pod, dropping this Friday, the 26th of October. Subscribe to The Book Pod wherever you get your podcasts.